Michelle, do you think you're good at saying no to things? I think I'm definitely getting better at saying no to things, but there's definitely those times where someone will ask me to do something that I might not have the bandwidth to do, but there's that nagging feeling of always wanting to prove myself or feeling like I have an obligation to do something. It's a lot to think about. It makes sense why saying no can be so hard, but it's definitely a powerful skill to have. And that's one of the biggest pieces of advice we got from today's guest, Natalia de Leon. Welcome to Propelling Women in Power, a podcast about the careers of women in energy at the Wisconsin Energy Institute on the UW-Madison campus and our sister institution, the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center. I am Meg Riker, and I am a junior undergraduate student studying civil engineering. I am a science writer intern with a passion for meeting people from different scientific disciplines and sharing their stories. And I'm Michelle Chung, former intern and current communication specialist at the Wisconsin Energy Institute. I love finding fun ways to highlight the research and people here at WEI and GLBRC. Here, we talk about women scientists and engineers' career paths, the obstacles they have faced, and most importantly, their advice for young women scientists and engineers. It is our goal to highlight their individual experiences, mentors, and work-life balance while seeking advice for young women in science and asking the question, who and what facilitated your success? Today, we spoke to Natalia de Leon, a professor of agronomy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison since 2006. She's also a GLBRC scientist who previously worked for Sargenta Seeds following her postdoctoral research at Michigan State University. She received her bachelor's degree in agronomy from Argentinian Catholic University and her PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We talked to her about a lot of things, including the importance of being able to say no in the process of finding balance, especially as a woman or a member of a minoritized group, and talking about how she looks to both official and unofficial mentors in her life and other advice she has for women in STEM. Let's give this a listen with Natalia de Leon. Natalia de Leon. I am originally from South America, so I did my undergrad in agronomy in South America and then came to the U.S. to do my graduate uh, career in um, my field is in plant breeding and plant genetics. And I particularly focus on improvement of plants, working with corn. I look at different economically important traits. So thinking about how do we improve productivity and additional uses for corn as an important economic crop, but also as a model species that yeah, that can, you know, the information that is generated from a genetic standpoint, biological standpoint, can then be used for, for other species. So my involvement in, in GOBRC was related to um, using corn as a source of biomass, but also using corn as a model that could help create information tools for other species as well. What are some things you enjoy about your work here specifically? Yeah, so I went into the area of agronomy and agriculture because I was looking for a way. I always liked biology, and then over the years I learned that I really, really liked genetics. But I was really looking for a way to channel that 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 liking into something that would have an impact i always like the applied aspect of it and in south america you know i feel like we have a more you know at least i grew up uh, fairly connected with agriculture and so thinking about how can i be uh, an entity that helps uh, involve agriculture into solutions for 
you know, economic program problems, environmental problems, um, uh, in in how we can use you know kind of combine basic science with with the real applied component of it. So that was what I really liked about that. And you know, the work specifically for GLBRC was you know very connected to that because it was all about how can we use very um, fundamental understanding of biology, modern tools for a very practical uh, purpose. Working with corn, my laboratory is outdoors, mm-hmm. and that is super attractive for me. I like I like the idea that I am with the organism in its context, so that that is also very attractive. Mm-hmm. You you enjoyed this outdoor aspect um, and connecting environmental and economic uh, points of view. Why did you stick with it? Why did you choose this as to be your career and your career path? Uh, so my career path was kind of interesting because I actually, when I finished graduate school, I did um, a postdoc after that, and then I actually worked for the seed industry for a few years before becoming um, before coming into my current position as faculty in agronomy. So I actually experienced a little bit of both. And the reason why I went from one to the other was kind of the opportunities that appear and they were very practical. It wasn't really a plan per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that really has kept me here, in addition to the fact that I really like my job, I, I feel like I'm always learning something new that is related to basic science, understanding how tools can be applied, and then they have that practical aspect and the fact that I'm outdoors. I mean, so the job itself is attractive, but what it really keeps me going is the people. My students, the members of my my group, and the connections and the interactions with my colleagues. I mean, I, I realize how rare, is, you know, the vast majority of the world's populations, they have jobs that they just have to work. I feel very fortunate to have a job that actually allows me to hang out with people that are as passionate as I am about certain things and that I can have conversations about work and we are actually enthusiastic about having that conversation. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we want to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that includes the students. It's a very big, important part for me. Um, not formal, not only my students in my program, but just interactions with the students. And I just came back from a conference last week and, you know, just walking through posters and getting to meet people and learning what they are doing and hearing about the enthusiastic experiences that they are having. It's just so uh, rewarding. It's its refreshing every time. So, It sounds like for you, work environment is really important for your career. Very critical, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think specifically in a work environment helps draw people with these passions and this conversation, this ability to communicate? Oh, I mean, I think... Uh, Primarily just respect for everybody and our differences. Um, I mean, that's where universities, um, I think, have to play a very important role. Because this is, you know, that is almost like by definition what we should be doing is giving uh, people the opportunity to share ideas, um, which means that we are not going to agree to everything that they say. And sometimes it might take longer to get us to where we want to get because we do have to respect everybody's opinions and um yeah, it, it you know, having the the maturity to actually hear 
listen and then process and then be willing to say, you know what, I was thinking about that for years and years and years, but you convinced me that maybe I should consider something else about that. And so that exercise is not easy, but I think it's it's very important. So respect, first of all, and then um, the, the ability to empower people to, mm-hmm. you know, have ideas and opinions and share them. Um, it's, it's really important. When we talk about empowering people, this, this podcast focuses on empowering women. Mm-hmm. Are there any ways that you see this occurring in your life um, or in your career in the past? Yeah. So I, I feel very, again, very fortunate that um, throughout my career, um, I've had really important people that mentor me and encourage me to keep doing what I was doing. And some people were pretty obvious. Uh, mentors some others as I get older I realized that they were my mentors without really being my you know like official mentors people that gave me the freedom to be who I wanted to be I think that was the most important thing so those are the informal mentors Mm -hmm. but I did have some really important mentors that you know formal mentors that taught me how to be a good scientist how to be a good I mean, as best as I could. I never had formal training on how to be a good teacher. They showed me, you know, how to how to to embrace and empower other people. And so, in my job, I consciously, um, I mean, I think that is a very important part of what I do. I, and I'm learning every day how to try to make it better. So. Um, I work in agriculture. Women are notoriously a minor, a notorious minor, minority in the majority of the agriculture-related fields. Um, so it's not rare for me to be the only woman, or the you know one in a few women in you know in, in the work that I've done, both industry, academia, um, the different activities. And I should say, as I progressed in my career, the numbers become less. Um, because there is also, I mean, and this is not news to anybody, that there is also significant attrition of women as they go through through their professional careers. Um, I, I think we are making significant improvements, but the reality is that we still have a lot of work mm-hmm. to do. So what I do is always be present. I think it's like anything in life, 99% of it is just being there. And then... I think my biggest two messages to anybody that I mentor, but especially women, is believe in yourself, and that sometimes is hard to do. Don't um, don't try to be perfect, because that's also another common misconception that you know we feel like in order to be impactful or be meaningful, we have to be perfect. No, and then. Just being there in in the little things. I you know sometimes I I realize how important it is if if a student of mine is giving a presentation, you know five minutes before the presentation, you know look in the eyes and say you can do this. You know so that is one. Believe in yourself and and don't feel like you have to. It has to be perfect. Uh, from a practical standpoint, women will be asked because we sometimes, especially in agriculture, in my world, we tend to be minority. We get asked to do a lot of things. So the second biggest thing that I've learned over time is that, you know, it's like it's, it's almost like an everyday decision making. Where should I invest my energy? Where should I invest my time? And I think for women, that is especially hard. So how to decide what are the places that would have a, a greater potential to be beneficial to you? And then when there are the times that 
doesn't feel like it is the best fit or something that would really be beneficial to empower those women and anybody really to just say no and not feel guilty about it. And that, you know, it, like I said, it, it will come in big decisions and it will also come into small decisions is, you know, at some point I need to leave the workplace and go to my house. I shouldn't feel guilty to say, you know, this is important for me. And so I realize over time how hard that is and how important it is because it's like a on time kind of process that you're making decisions and those decisions are important and, and every little one will have consequences. So I've, I've tried to talk about that with mm -hmm. my students and people around me. So how do you decide when to say no and when to take something off? Well, that's a great question. I, you know, it's hard. Um, one of the things that I, that I have learned to do is I try not to give answers immediately. Mm. Like I had a tendency in the past that if somebody would ask me something, I felt obliged to just on the spot make a decision. And I learned that that's really not a good idea. So having a, just a little bit of time to think about it and maybe consult with somebody else in, you know, if you have that, that ability has helped me sort of see, you know, things from outside and has helped. Another thing that popped into my head when you were talking about that is fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, so evidently this is a way to kind of make sure that you don't get too fatigued. Yes. Um, but another thing that I've been thinking about recently, and I think I've talked with Michelle about this, is how do we ensure that the women or minoritized groups that we talk to don't get too fatigued or burned out talking about their experiences and when do we should we just take their advice and move forward with that instead of just continually asking for advice yeah I mean that's a very very big and important issue and one that I struggle a lot so in order to um, promote women and minority we are having them participate more in activities and it's a huge responsibility. So first of all, when I invite somebody from some, for something, I always start by saying, it is totally okay to say no. I would never be offended. I want you to feel like it is your right. I'm inviting you because you know I would love to have you participate, but please feel free to say no. The other thing is that I try as much as possible to figure out ways to compensate people for that effort. It's not always possible. You know, monetarily is one way. So if you're inviting somebody to give a talk or give a presentation, but even more so if you're asking somebody that you know is very busy and you know it's going to be putting a lot of mental and emotional involvement into a presentation, because all of these conversations can be quite draining. You know, it could be money, but it could be also, you know, if you're going to come here, I can connect you with, people that could, you know, help you in certain things or, or ask, is there, is there anything that would help you? It's not always possible. Women, I have to say, is one of the easiest categories to sort of say, okay, I want to work on promoting women. So it's more obvious. It's a big, bigger population. It's a bigger population. It's more obvious. People walking on the street, they might be underrepresented minorities for different things mm -hmm. that are not necessarily obvious. So how do you give the opportunity for people to really share what is important to them? And so I have become really sensitized to the fact that there is the obvious and then there is everything else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes everyone's been the only person of their type in a yes, room, absolutely. but you might not think about it. Even so like men, you know, I'm the sure. They, there's something that keeps them. There's a characteristic that makes them the only one of themselves. Yes, and, and you know, I the fr I I have this memory of um, actually a friend of my 
my dad, I was having this conversation, you know, a white male, mm-hmm. um, he had lost a, his job at the age of 61 and didn't have really good retirement plans. And so I remember, you know, just kind of, he said he was forced to retire and he felt like the minority in the setup that he he was you know mm-hmm. so i remember you know it, it was one of the first times that i you know i that i have the recollection of thinking like oh you know mm-hmm. i would have never thought that you felt marginalized because you were a, you know a more senior person so are, were there any factors or obstacles uh, in your life or career or academic track that made it more difficult for you to succeed in your field? Um, and was being a, w- a woman one of them, or did that influence anything? I'm sure this is not going to surprise you. There is still a lot of unconscious biases, and I feel, and I always say this, you know, every time I feel like disheartened about these issues, I remember something that my mom told me once, and she's like, you know, you're better than I was, and I'm better than your grandma was. So there is progress mm-hmm. that is being made, but there is a lot of unconscious biases and I feel like being sitting in a room and making a comment and then somebody else making the same comment and mm-hmm. my comment was ignored is a pretty common thing. It's, you know, it takes more work. I I feel like I, you know, I, I could have moved through things faster mm-hmm. or better, less painfully if I wasn't a woman, but I'm here. And so, you know, it's, it's, like I said, I think progress continues to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, we see more women coming into positions. I think there are more representation of women at, in most fields, more assistant professors and associate professors, more associate professors, than, more associate professors than full professors. And in industries, I mean, the same thing. We don't have as many female CEO, 500, whatever, Fortune mm-hmm. CEOs, but there is more than there were 10, ten years ago. Yes. So as we see... Uh, as you go farther up the pipeline, we are seeing more women, but it's still kind of like a, a pyramid. Yeah, very, very um, sharp pyramid. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, how would how do we retain women and minoritized groups in these roles, or how would you, <laughs> how would you approach it if you had a say in it? Well, and I mean, I think it, it's a little bit like we talked about when you invite people that um, f- are feeling fatigue. I mean, I think women and minorities, especially in those positions, the more we can acknowledge that and um, one sort of myth that I think needs to be at least considered is that the best mentor for a woman is not necessarily a woman. The best mentor for a particular underrepresented minority in an organization is not necessarily an individual from that same underrepresented minority. We are not making us a favor if we, you know, kind of follow that path. We really have to make sure that we engage the entire society. There will be margins of the society that we will never be able to engage. But there are big portions of the society that that can contribute. We can't alienate anybody. I think it's the same things. We need to acknowledge those individuals that are representing a certain group in certain situations and try to value that participation by highlighting it, by saying, you know, what can I what can I do for you because you're doing something that is very special. I think that's a great point of view, having this empathy for everybody. Everybody is key. Mm-hmm. So 
do you have any support networks that you lean on when your professional work becomes difficult or overwhelming at any, any yeah, point? Yeah, I mean, and most of them are personal. My support networks are friends and family. I, I all, again, I feel very fortunate that when I leave work, I have something outside of work that means a lot to me, which is my family. So I get home and I have all these issues and problems and and then I get there and my son is like, I can't find my soccer socks. Where are they? And he's like, yeah, I can't go to the game with white ones. It has to be black. And whatever the huge problem I had just turns into nothing because I need to find the black pair of socks. <laughs> and so having having that balance, it, you know, it's with kids. And I've also learned to also take time for friends because, you know, work is very busy. Family is very busy. And I've realized that I need to also have something for my for myself, my my book club or my, you know, time to exercise. And because that is also a way to maintain mental sanity. When I have a bad day, when I am lost, um, it's my family and friends that I go to. Um, so that kind of hits on the point of work life balance. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I'm slowly coming to that realization. <laughs> you, have to, you have to take time for yourself or else it's going to come for you. Well, it, most definitely. And I have to say, like the word balance, I, I personally don't like it because there's no such a thing as balance. I mean, oh my gosh. It's that daily decision making, daily, hourly. And most of all, it's, it's, I think I, I alluded at the beginning, not feeling guilty about that hourly daily decisions you have to make decisions about okay where am I going to invest my next four hours or where am I going to invest my next day or my week Mm -hmm. and that's how you know the balance comes from that but it's not really a balance because it's like high low high here low here today high here low here so you never get you never feel like you are balanced Um, it's just that I think it's learning not to feel guilty about how unbalanced it would be. And then the only the only time that it becomes a balance is over a period of time. But that period of time for some people might be a week, for some people might be a year, for some people might be a decade. So um, I, you know, it's, it's I, I'm trying to find another term and mm-hmm. I think all it boils down to is guilt-free Mm-hmm. decision making mm-hmm. the, the, the thing that I also think about too is that my decisions are my decisions but the things that I do are being seen by other people if I if I don't take the time to do the things that are important you know I can't just talk the talk and not walk the walk about being a role model too yeah I mean, I mean I, again big words but yeah yeah what people see mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I definitely have learned to respect and to know how much I don't know and come to, come to terms to on you know on that particular feeling. That's a, an important recognition. I, I you know not all the time I feel like I am being an imposter. Respecting the fact that there's a lot that I don't know. I also feel like part of being present even when I cannot be as impactful is empowering other people to say okay I can be part of it too. So you said that you have seen noticeable changes to the numbers of women uh, in your field. What if anything would you like to see changed um, in the future for women in your field? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, numbers keep, uh, we, we, mm-hmm. uh, we have, we are making progress, but we are definitely far from, you know, population is about 50% women, 50% men. And we are definitely far from 50% women represented in a lot of, uh, in agriculture related fields, certainly, uh, but in many fields. Uh, but I also, the question that you ask, I think is key is between now and then, right? Between today and getting there, it's going to take uh, significantly more work for those individuals to continue to fight through it. And my mom is right that, you know, we are doing better than their generation was and her, gener- her generation was doing better than the previous generation. But the pressure is enormous mm-hmm. um, for everybody. I mean, I think it's not coincidence that we are seeing enormous amounts of mental um, mental illnesses related situations. And I mean, the last couple of years have been very Stressful. hard, mm-hmm. you know, more so than than the average. And I think part of it is because it there is a lot of pressure. There is a lot of, you know, as the world advances and we are all so interconnected and anything that you do is distributed through to many more people, the pressure is enormous. And so if the pressure is enormous on the average population, and I think it is, I think it, it, the pressure keeps growing because of the nature of the world, for those people that are, you know, that are represented um, in smaller uh, numbers in in society, in certain groups, in certain situations, that, dub- I mean, that makes it even harder, right? And so how do we compensate for that? How do we acknowledge that? And part of it is just saying, I noticed that there is only you, but then some systematically acknowledging, recognizing, and finding ways to compensate for that. What can I do for you? Mm. You know, how can I help you have a successful next step? So what advice would you give to young women entering your field? I I mean, I sort of alluded to it. Um, My two ones is, Believe in yourself. You mm-hmm. can do it. The second one is make decisions as much as you can, pausing, considering, and not feel guilty about it. There is a tendency, in my experience of women, that they feel like they have to do it all. And, you know, from a practical standpoint, never feel that that's the case. It's totally fine to rely on others. That doesn't show weakness. That shows that shows the strength. And that will help you not go crazy, not get sick. I mean, it's just so in, in it, from the really, you know, basic things to the most complicated, more complicated. I mean, one of the best decisions I've ever made is, you know, I need help with certain things that don't require my presence. So I take advantage of services, resources, whatever it takes. That doesn't show weakness. Um, that shows that shows a strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great point to end on. Um, Michelle, do you have any questions that you would like to ask? You do have a question? All right. (laughs) Hello. Hi. (laughs) Um, Okay. So clearly believing in yourself is like a learning process. Mm. You've gleaned into parts of this yourself in your own growth. What was that process like for you? Like, how did you come to be this person that's so confident? Well, so I think it was, again, I mean, very fortunate. I think my family always made me believe that I could do it, which is, I mean, I realized that how lucky, how lucky I was to, you know, just be you. Of course, there were rules and there, you know, things that you're not supposed to do, but I could be myself. 
so that you know that was very important and then as i started my professional career that's what my mentors were so critical i may remember my i had a teacher in high school that she was the only the only teacher that actually would meet with you when we were getting to the end of our uh, you know high school experience back in south america and she would ask the question you know what do you see yourself being in the future and and she was very much like Maybe she didn't really realize all the things that all the possibilities, but she's like, oh, that sounds great. And yes, you can do it. And look at this, you know, and she would do research and, you know, find things about the world that, you know, could could be helpful. And then my graduate scientific advisor was another person that from the very beginning, I remember when I started thinking about job opportunities that I will come with, you know, what I thought was the perfect fit for me. And he's like, how about this? And I'd be like, oh, that's such a shot. And he's like, no, you know, you have the no already. So why, you know, that was sort of the feeling that he always was like, you you have the no already. So why not try it? And and then the other part is that not only, I mean, in, in, in all those cases, these are people that, don't just told me to do it. They were there with me all the way, right? Because mm-hmm. that you can you can tell everybody, oh, believe in yourself, do what you want, and then turn around and leave, right? Yeah. That doesn't work. There are those key decisions that if somebody tells you, I mean, I remember you know a particular situation with my my PhD advisor. I was, you know, thinking in all these jobs that, you know, now looking backwards, I was like, I would have been bored out of my mind doing that job. <laughs> and he's like, no, you know, just think about this other thing. And, and that was key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The support along the way. Mm-hmm. The yeah. support along the way. Mm-hmm. Michelle, is there anything that jumped out to you initially about the things that she said? Yeah, a thing that we've brought up a lot is that minorities get asked to do a lot of things. Yes. And to to have any bandwidth, you need to take a break and not feel guilty about it. Yes, that was a big thing mm-hmm. that she discussed here was not feeling guilty. And I think because minoritized groups, you know, are in the minority, they might feel like they are obligated to fulfill certain roles mm-hmm. or talk about their experiences, but that can be exhausting and trying not to feel guilty about that because you're do- if you're doing the best you can right with the energy that you have that's okay yeah that's, that's what good that's great that's what <laughs> yeah. you can contribute yeah um, part of her solution was like creating a space where people don't feel obligated yes to do things having it be a comfortable space to say no I also liked when she was talking about her advice for others uh, her first one is you don't have to be perfect Um, And I thought that's something that maybe we could speak to for women, especially because like trying to be perfect in all different spheres of life, like being maybe a mother and, you know, a PhD student or an undergraduate or something like that. Yeah. And she didn't like the, the word balance. And it's really just a matter of just like what decisions are you going to make for yourself today? Mm-hmm. And it's going to be different every day. Mm-hmm. And that's our show. Thank you to everyone listening. We're your hosts, Meg Riker and Michelle Chung. This show was edited and produced by us and Mark Griffin. Thanks again to our guest, Natalia DeLeon, a professor of agronomy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a scientist at the Great Lakes Bioenergy Research Center. And see you next time on Propelling Women in Power. Uh, What do you consider to be your superpower? Oh!
Oh, I need to think about these. <laughs> That's okay. I would have to think about it too <laughs> if I got asked this. I mean, I, 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 um, hmm. I, I, I can read people. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I can read people. Mm -hmm. So I think I didn't realize how much of a superpower that is. Yeah. I can. Yeah. <laughs>